Hey, to all of our moms, to all of our foster moms, adopted moms, aunts that are second moms, stepmoms, all of our grandmothers, grandmoms, mamas, mimis, grammys, can we just say happy Mother's Day to all of you? Absolutely. Hey, how about a couple Mother's Day memes? I found these online. Check these out. When your kid takes up all the space in your bed, even though there should be plenty of space for you both. And if you've ever seen that movie, you go, Leonardo did not have to die. You know, there was plenty of space. Oh, excuse me, today you don't like bananas? I'm sorry, I must have confused you with that toddler that ate three entire bananas yesterday. If you're a mom, you know what that's about. When the baby falls asleep on you and you try to move them to the crib so gently. And then I love this one. The kid just cracked the code for Mother's Day. Mom, I just wanted to tell you that Mother's Day wouldn't be possible without me. I'll be waiting for my present in the living room. Isn't that good? <laughs> All right, I found something else that's fun. You'll know you're a mom if, you know you're a mom if you've ever counted the number of grapes on each kid's plate to make sure that it was equal, so to avoid the fights. Okay. I think maybe if you've ever counted the sprinkles on a cupcake to make sure that a kid, right? All right, you know your mom if you only have shaved one leg at a time. Any moms? Like one time and I don't have time. If you've ever hidden in the bathroom to be alone. Any moms? Yes. All right. If uh, this is, <laughs> if your kid throws up and you try to catch it and keep it from going anywhere, you're a mom. Or if you've ever, if you've ever hoped that ketchup counts as a vegetable because you're pretty sure it's the only vegetable your kid is getting. Or you know your mom if you've ever wondered, man, I don't know if I'm ever cut out for this job. Any people out there say, man, I'm not quite sure if I've cut out for this job. Absolutely. Absolutely, because there is a pressure that a lot of moms will feel to be this perfect super mom, the perfect wife, the perfect mom, the perfect hostess, the perfect leader, the perfect romantic, the perfect creative genius, the perfect neighbor. And as we start today, I want to share some good news with you, and that is this. God does not expect you to be perfect, and neither do we. There are no perfect moms out there. There are no perfect families out there. Even the families in Scripture are not perfect families. In fact, Eugene Peterson writes this, a search of Scripture turns up a surprising truth that there are no exemplary families. Not a single family is portrayed in Scripture in such a way as to evoke admiration in us. There's no one family for us to look up to and to model. Adam and Eve are no sooner out of the garden than one son kills another. Shem, Ham, and Japheth, sons of Moses, are forced to devise a strategy to cover up their father's drunken shame. Jacob and Esau, they're bitter rivals. Joseph's father plays favorites, and his brothers redefine sibling rivalry. David is a man after God's own heart, but he cannot manage his own household. And even Jesus' family criticized him and didn't appreciate him. The biblical material consistently portrays the family not as this Norman Rockwell painting, perfection, but as a series of broken relationships in need of grace. There are no perfect families out there. There's no perfect moms out there. 
But in Scripture, what we do see is there are some heroic moments. There are some heroic characters. There are some folks, and some, some people get lots of press in Scripture, but there are some heroic characters in Scripture, heroic moments in Scripture that don't get a lot of press, a whole lot of recognition. And that's why we're calling this series Unsung. The idea in this teaching series is that we're going to look at some characters and some moments in Scripture that are heroic but are maybe under-recognized. Under They're unsung moments. And of course, I can't think of a better day to start that on Mother's Day because when I think of what moms do, it is largely unrecognized. It is largely unsung, even though it is often heroic. And so today what I want to do is I want to look at a character in Scripture you maybe have never heard of before. She's a mother that is largely unsung for her role in Scripture, and her name is Hannah. I'm going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 1, so if you've got Bibles, you can turn there. If not, we're going to put it up on the screen. But Hannah's role is super important because Hannah is the mother of Samuel. And Samuel is a major prophet in the Old Testament, one that in a very young age has to stand up to some sort of corrupt uh, other prophets, some other leaders, and sort of stand up for what's right. Um, Samuel, who then later anoints King David as the future king of Israel. And of course, we know that it is in the lineage of David that Jesus is born. So Hannah has this pivotal Role, And we want to look over her shoulder today and see if we can't learn things about not just being a mother, but about being someone that builds into the next generation. So whoever you are today, father, neighbor, uncle, uh, we're building into the next generation. Now, uh, Hannah's story doesn't start off so well. In verse 10, it says this, in bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much. And prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. Now, maybe you know what that feels like. Hannah is a woman that had been trying to, to have a baby, had been trying to have a son, had been trying to have a child, and she wasn't able to do it. And and, and I, I relate to that. It took us, um, after we started our, uh, with our first child, it took us over uh, almost two years to get pregnant with Grace. Um, we lost a child through miscarriage uh, between number two and number four. And I know someday I look forward to meeting that child in heaven. And some of you know what that feels like. Some of you know that Mother's Day is not always a day to celebrate. We had a video earlier in the service that tried to recognize that, but I just want to add my voice to that. As someone who's lost my own mother, I know that Mother's Day is not all celebration. You could be sitting here today and go, you know what, I feel guilty for, for how I'm raising the next generation. And maybe so today you're feeling that pressure. Maybe you're someone that's, that's dealing with challenges in your motherhood. Maybe you're facing the same thing Hannah did, and that is infertility. You would love, you would love to have a child, but God hasn't done that in your life yet. But I'll have you note, what does Hannah do in that moment, in that grief? What does she do with that pain? She brings it right to God. 
The one who has the love, the one who has the power to make a difference, she brings it to God. And that's the first thing I want to share with you is that Hannah prays for her son. That's the first thing we learn from Hannah, this unsung hero. She prays for her son. And that's not the only place that she prays for her son. Look, there's another place in verse 13. It says, Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. And Eli thought she was drunk. This is the the leader at the temple. And he said to her, how long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Totally misunderstands the situation. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who's deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring my soul out to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and my grief. And Eli answered, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. Folks, I want you to know that the fervent prayer of a mother is a powerful thing. The fervent prayer of a mother, a father, that's a powerful thing. We ought to be praying for our children, praying for that next generation, praying for their future, praying for their health, praying for their next steps with God, praying for their faith. Man, my mom, um, early on, she, would, you know, she was praying for me from, from a very young age, just always praying for me. One of the things she did was that she would pray for my future wife. I was like this young boy, and she's praying, oh, God, help him meet some woman that loves Jesus. You know, that, uh, help him meet some woman that's beautiful. Help him meet some woman, you know. And my mom would always pray that. And I remember after my mom's passing, Uh, We were kind of reflecting on my mom. I was sharing that with my mother-in-law. And she said, oh, my goodness, that's so great. She goes, I wish I'd have prayed that way for my daughter. (laughs) And I wasn't quite sure how to take that, you know. (laughs) Listen, Rachel and I, we prayed for our kids ever since we were little, or ever since they were little. Um, We'd pray with them uh, when they would go to bed. And one of the prayers, I learned this from uh, Andy Stanley. He had this little prayer. We'd pray, and I think our kids could still recite it. Dear God, help us to have the courage to do what's right, the wisdom to know what's right. Help us to say the right things with our mouths and do the right things with our hands, even when it's hard. Isn't that good? And we'd pray that for our kids. And even as our kids would get older, we'd pray for them at night. Even if they would get older. And I'll just give you this little tip. If you've got teenagers, now you know this with teenagers, you ask them how they're doing. They just, they, they, at some point they stop talking. Am I right? At some point teenagers just begin this sort of grunting communication. Like how are things going? Eh, you know, eh, kind of thing. And as a parent, you're just wanting to know, like how are your friendships? How are things going? You know, what are you struggling with? You want to know these things. I'm just going to give you a pro tip for parents. You go in and you pray with them at night and then you just start rubbing their back. Okay. Just start rubbing their back, and then you start asking questions. Hey, how are things going? Now, they get into this little stupor, right, where they're kind of half asleep and half awake, and they also do not want you to stop rubbing their back. So every question you ask, they're going to answer, and you will find things just bubble up to the top. And that's just a pro tip for you, okay? You just pray, hey, how are things going? How are your friends? Do you do drugs? No, you know, those kinds of things. (laughs) Hey, do this. Pray when you eat together. Studies show, you can go look this up uh, tonight. Um, Families that eat together 
have higher nutrition for their kids. They have uh, lower anxiety, lower depression, higher academic performance, higher self-esteem. When you get together to eat, sit down as a family, pray together. I just recently was with my son. He's back from college. We went out to get some Chipotle. We sat down, and the first thing he did was, I'll pray. And I hadn't seen him in a while, and I just thought, man, that's so cool that that's just natural for him. Let's just pray together. So maybe be praying for your children. Second thing this unsung hero did, Hannah, is she valued the early years. Look at 1 Samuel 1, verse 24. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. Now, we think weaning, we think nursing. So we're thinking, okay, one or two years or, you know, whatever it is. Um, experts would tell us that it's probably that he's seven or ten, maybe eleven, when he's brought to Eli in the temple. Because it's not so much just about nursing as much as it is, when is this child to the point that he can actually be helpful? When he doesn't need to be cared for every day, but he can sort of take care of himself. So a little bit older. And, and, and don't miss this, Hannah was up for letting Samuel basically go to boarding school for his religious training and for his, up, uh, his upbringing. But she was very intentional with him during those early years. She valued those early years. You study anything about child development, you know that in those early years, it's so formative. Brains are just getting formed. Attachments are being formed. It is so important in those early years, as much as is humanly possible, for mom and dad to be locking eyes with baby, with toddler, with 10-year-old. It's as much as humanly possible for mom and dad to be uh, uh, letting them hear your voice, letting them feel your touch. There's just so much development that's happening in those early years. That's why we value and put so many resources here into Willow Kids because we know that those kids, listen, we don't do Willow Kids just to babysit the kids so that we all can come in here undisturbed. That's not why we do it. We do it because those kids are soaking up so much knowledge, so much input, And we want them to hear about Jesus. We want them to experience Jesus. We want them to understand those stories. Some people think, yeah. Some people think that, you know, you bring your kid to church like you take your kid to, to, you know, piano lessons. Well, I can't play piano. Therefore, I'm going to take them to an expert and let the expert train them on piano. So, just like that, I don't know a lot about the Bible. I don't know how to teach my kid the Bible, so I'm going to take their kid to, to the experts at church and let them teach. Guys, I'm telling you, that's not the way it is. You are the number one, mom and dad, caregiver, you're the number one spiritual biggest influence on your child. Therefore, you ought to be bringing them, you ought to be also participating. I just want to say this as sort of pastor of the church. If you've got a kid in Willow Kids, I want to encourage you to volunteer in Willow Kids. You say, well, oh, you're just trying to fill the volunteers. No, 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 no. It's wonderful because we, you know, we, we have a wonderful ministry, but it's also because in the midst of it, you learn how to share Jesus and the Bible with your child. You participate with other people, and you begin to see, oh, okay, I know that story, or I know how I can pray with a kid, or I know where a kid's at, sort of their development, and we will partner with you on how to be that biggest spiritual influence in your child's life. Those early years are so 
important. Unsung hero, Hannah. Number three, Hannah raised and released her son. Verse 25, after he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was. They brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, As surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life, he will be given over to the Lord. Now, even at 10 or 11 or 12, that must have been gut-wrenching for Hannah to do. He's so young. And how hard is it at any age for parents to release their children? To release their children. I remember dropping grace off at the first day of school. I had this little pickup truck. The muffler was bad. I was embarrassed going through the parent line because I'm thinking everybody's looking at me. And I was focused on that and wasn't really focused on her. And then I just remember opening the door and she, she got out and she started walking. And I'm just going, well, who's going who's gonna to take her in? Who's going to make sure she doesn't run out into the parking lot? Who's going to take care of this girl? I'm just dropping her off. It's so hard just to release them. And now I'm going today to celebrate her graduation from college, which is so crazy to think about. We think about releasing our children. That's a progressive thing. It doesn't just happen when they go off to the military or when the day they get married or the day that they graduate from college. It's a progressive thing to release them over time. I was walking back at Willow Kids and saw a mother sit down and sort of get down at eye level because the child didn't want to go into the class. Sometimes if you've got a little toddler, you know, sometimes they want to cling to mom and dad, but you got to release them. It happens when you're young. And little mom got down. She's like, now listen, here's how, listen, it's okay. And, and, and here's what's going to happen is you've got this little number. See your sticker? Yeah. And, and, and they got a number. And, and little Miss Susan, she's got your number too. And if anything happens, if you need mommy, I'm going to be in the big auditorium, and they're going to, you know, the number will come up, and I'll be able to come back. I'll be back in two or three minutes. It was so sweet. And then she let the child go. Then she came back and said, but don't you let your number come up. You understand me? Don't you let your number come up. Do y'all remember the old days they used to have the number, like, on the screen, or they used to have that LED? And man, when my kids were young like that, it was like the walk of shame. If your name came up, you had to get, it's like everybody in the, oh, that's their kid, you know. <laughs> the releasing happens when they're young. It happens when they're six years old and they get on that bus for the first time and they walk back to their seat and you're standing at the bus stop and the bus begins to pull away and they just, a little tear down their face. Just, you got to let them go. On into when they're 16 and they get in the car for the first time. Or they're headed off to their first summer job. Or the first time they go out on a date. Ooh, man. You don't know how to do that? This is what we did. Grace was 13. We said, listen, we're going to let you date. 13. We're just not going to let you shave your legs or wear deodorant until you're 25. All right? <laughs> That's how you release your children. You have to do it because at some point that's the goal. You want them to be independent. You want to always have a great relationship with them, but you don't want them to have to need you financially, need you emotionally, need you for everything. 
Heard a story about a young man married six months, called his mother, and just began to rehearse all the problems with his new wife. At the end of his rehearsing all of the problems with his new wife, his mother said, well, what do you want me to do for you, son? And he said, I want to come home. And mom said, son, you are home. That's a wise mother. That's a mother who knows how to release her son. All right, number four, unsung hero Hannah sets her son up to win, sets her son up to win. 1 Samuel 2, 18, 19, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. So here she is, she spends some time, she takes some resources, and she walks what would have been 10 miles, 10 miles, and every year brings this little ephod, his little uniform, up to the temple. She sets him up with what he needs to win. And I believe moms, dads, as we invest in that next generation, we ought to be setting them up to win. And that means that we're going to have to give them opportunities. And it means that we may have to sacrifice to do that. We may have to spend some time pouring over homework with them. We may need to spend some time using our cars like taxis as we take them to this sport or this opportunity or this activity. We may have to invest in ways financially with our kids to set them up with opportunities to win. And then finally, Hannah models a commitment to God. You notice in that verse that She's bringing the clothes up with her husband to the temple to worship together. She's not just sending him out to church. She's just not saying, you know what, take your little uniform and you ought to go to church. She's saying, you know what, we are going to do this as a family. How many of you know that especially young kids, man, they are going to, it's caught more than taught. The values, the principles, the priorities that you have, your kids catch that more than they do just listen to what you have to say. I remember when Luke was one year old. My son Luke started talking, I think, when he was nine or ten months. I mean, really early, just talking and talking and talking. And he picked up, at about 11 months, he picked up this word. He would say, dang it. Which I know, it's kind of cute at first. But over time, when you're out to eat and when you're shopping and you're this, and he's just, dang it, mom, dang it, I want food, dang it, I want it this. And, and Rachel's like, I, I just, I'm going to try to get him to stop saying this. And she's like, I don't, I don't, we don't know where he picked it up. And here we are, like, and he finally stopped saying it, but here we are, you know, 20 years later, and dang it, I don't know where he picked it up, you guys. <laughs> right? They catch things. You can say what you want to say, but they're watching you all the time. Can I give you some thoughts on ways that you might model a relationship with God to your children? If you want God to be the number one thing in your kid's life, let me give you some things. One, be in a small group. When my kids have, would come up from the basement and they would see a circle of grown-ups with their heads bowed and their eyes closed praying, when they saw dad's friends and mom's friends pouring over scripture, do you know what it did? 
We didn't have to say anything. They just absorbed that. Serve. Do you know one of the things I love about seed packing, and I just want to say, like, way to go, everybody. That's amazing. A million packs. That's awesome. But when you, yeah, give it up. That's so cool. But one of the things I love about seed packing is all the little kids that were here. And they watched aunts and uncles and moms and dads and grown-ups serving, serving, serving. I love that. And if you want to show your kids that God is number one, can I encourage you, make church a non-negotiable for your family. So I'm not going to put any guilt on you. I just want you to hear this. If you want to really communicate the message that God is number one in your life, then, you know, don't just come to church when you feel like it. Come to church, it's a non-negotiable. One of the things, maybe on vacation you go to church. Not to be legalistic, but man, there's nothing like that to show a kid. Hey, what about soccer? You say, well, you know what? Every once in a while we have to skip, skip church because we've got soccer tournaments. What if every once in a while you skipped a soccer tournament because you have church? And the reason I share that with you is because there's a very small chance that your kid is going to go pro in their sport. A very small chance. I hate to be the bearer of that bad news. But there is a 100% chance that your child is going to go through some storms in their life. And I'm sorry, when they're 30 years old and they go through a storm in their life, that soccer ball ain't going to do much for them. You can't pray to a soccer ball. Now, you can talk to a volleyball, uh, apparently, Wilson, Tom Hanks, but you can't pray to a soccer ball. So I just encourage you to do that. All right, we better close with prayer. I'll just close with this. I read a story out of Iraq recently where, unfortunately, a suicide bomb went off in a bus. And so many were injured and so many were killed. And as... The police and the the rescuers were coming into the bus and sort of sorting through things. They found a grandmother um, deceased. Inside the, I mean, like next to the grandmother, shielded by the grandmother, is a mother deceased. Holding a baby that had been saved. And I read that and I thought, I I know it's a little shocking, it's a little morbid, but I thought, man, I want to share that on Mother's Day because I think in some ways that's, that is just a beautiful picture of a mother's love. And, And at the same time, a beautiful picture of Jesus' love for you and for me. It says in 1 Peter 2, 24, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Here it is. By his wounds, you have been healed. There was a punishment that we deserved. There was a a wave of sin and brokenness and death coming at us. And Jesus, by his wounds, shields us. And all he asks in return is to say, to put your faith in me, to come and to follow me. And if we put our faith in Jesus and follow him, then our sins can be forgiven. 
we can live with God forever. That is the gospel. That's the good news. And as we close today, I just, I just want to encourage you to ask the question, what is your next step with God? Maybe for you it is to spend a little bit more time in prayer together as a family. You hear something from God's word today and you say, you know what, I want to begin to implement that in my family. Maybe for you, your next step is to say, you know what, uh, I want to get into a small group. My, that's my next step. So I want to begin to encourage others in their walk with God. I want them to encourage me. I want to be able to pray with each other. Maybe for you, your next step is to serve, to find a team to serve on. Maybe for you, your next step is just to come back next week. Or maybe for you to tell someone about the hope that you have in Jesus. It could be that there's someone here at one of our locations that for the very first time, God is saying, hey, hey, come home. And maybe for you to say yes to Jesus for the very first time, maybe to go public with your faith in baptism, we'd love to encourage you to do that. At the end of the service, just come down front or go to one of the stations at your campus. And there'll be people there who will help you make those decisions. But whatever your next step is, let's take it together as a church family.